0: Software engineering is a field that never seems to stop growing. It feels like there's a new front-end library that comes out every week, and the concept of DevOps in particular seems to have its foundation rattled every month or so. This begs the question of, how are you supposed to keep up? Today's guest is Shane Burkhart, a longtime friend of mine and a coworker from many years ago. Shane's a freelance developer, and today we'll be talking about how we teach ourselves new things. Thanks for joining me today, Shane.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Of course. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how long you've been doing uh, software-related things and what you're currently working on?
1: So I've been doing software for almost 10 years now, believe it or not. Um, I think back on it, it's hard to even think it's been that long. But 10 years ago, I started teaching myself to code Android apps. Um, And then I worked really hard in my free time to learn everything I could about development and web development, Android development, you know whatever it was, and worked really hard to get my an internship at Yelp, which I then worked at Carfax with Brad. That's how we know each other. And then after that, I worked at a startup called SumoMe. Um, after working a little while at Sumo, I decided that I didn't want to work a job anymore, and I was going to go try to do my own thing and teach people how to code, actually. It was a company called Spark School. Um, I did that for a while, and then um, decided to move on to something else, kind of take a marketing approach since I thought that was my weakness at the time. And started doing some marketing consulting, doing whatever consulting I needed to do and kind of taking it easy looking for ideas. I've been working on a startup startups plural in the construction industry for the past year or two, and recently been working towards um react dev shop of some kind you know getting back into my roots and doing some coding again in a more serious professional environment
0: that's awesome i know react resonates uh really well with me and some of the listeners we have too so i'm sure they'd be excited to hear more about that for sure uh so you mentioned a lot of different technology and 10 years seems like a, a large amount of time in the grand scheme of things but when it comes to technology it's like it's really not uh not enough for one particular piece, at least. Yeah. How do you How do you learn all those things? So you went from Android to web to marketing to back to React. Like, how, how do you keep up?
1: Um, it, keeping up is the hard part. I, you know, I feel like I haven't been in a, I haven't worked at a, a job for a few years, and so I look at like Hacker News and and I see some of the technologies coming out, and it's funny because I feel like I'm getting out of touch, and it's only been a short amount of time. Um, and I'm still in the game. So, uh, but how do, how do I learn all those things? Um, basically jumping in and doing a project. Every If I don't have a project to do something uh, to bang my head against, like, you know, it could be something as simple as just a portfolio website for myself or maybe a tool that helps me with a hobby or maybe actual business example. But if I have a project that I can force myself through that uses the technologies that I'm wanting to use, then learning is really easy. It's just a matter of time. So that's really my strategy that I've used up until this point. It's worked really well for me.
0: One thing that I find really interesting is like, it is a matter of time, but there's only so much time in a day. Yeah. So how how deep do you go on any like given technology? Do you really commit yourself to one or two things at a time while learning? Or do you kind of, uh, try to spread across the gamut of new technologies or new tools?
1: While learning, I don't think it's possible to spread it too thin. I feel like if I'm learning, I can only realistically take one or two completely new things on at any given time. Otherwise, you're just going to be stuck in paralysis because you can't get anything to work. You know, it's just the nature of debugging and stuff like that. I think that uh, most of my projects were centered around one piece of technology that i wanted to learn and then the rest of them were fillers so like i already knew html and css but maybe i wanted to learn react at one point or maybe i wanted to learn ios and i already knew how to build back-end servers to power it you know what i'm saying
0: yeah that does make a lot of sense um i'm pretty notorious about digging into a lot of really new technology i I have a very academic um uh, feeling towards technology, I guess, where I'm, I'm constantly wanting to learn new stuff. And I have a, I have a friend that uh, asked me what he should use on a project, and I told him what I was using. Um, and he's like, "Okay, cool. I'll learn React and TypeScript and Go and and GraphQL." And I'm, I'm like, uh ah, hang, <laughs> hang on. Maybe just just learn one thing at a time. Like, yeah. just do something in React, and then add TypeScript, and then add other stuff if you want." Oh yeah, I think that if
1: it's the only way to go. I mean, if you're gonna All those are awesome things you just mentioned. If anybody wants to learn any of those, they definitely should. Um, But I think that taking all of them on at once, I've definitely been there too. Uh, And I think that's how I learned that that wasn't good for me is just trying to build exactly what you're talking about. I believe I did a Go app one time with a React front end, you know, and, and it was just way too much to take on. So I definitely agree that it's just not something that you can take a lot of pieces on at one time.
0: Yeah, totally. So you said, um, that you, ag- uh, you thought all those were really good things to learn. Mm-hmm. I- I'm curious, do you think there's any technology that like, isn't a good thing to learn?
1: Um, yeah. PHP, I'd say, unless you're going to go work at a specific place that does PHP, you know, I'd say like, um, any of, I'd say if you're going to learn C of some kind, you better go work at a C shop, you know? Um, Or just want a general understanding of how programming languages work, too. I mean, I did C at one point, but never have written any C professionally. Um, But I'd say that any of the Python, the Rubies, the Golangs, the... I mean, even some of the languages you're more familiar with, like Elixir, I think, has a lot of capacity or capabilities, too. Um, But I think, like, Docker a Necessity, Git, you know, that's definitely a Necessity... Um, I think React's pretty much a necessity if you're going to go front-end. TypeScript, I feel like, is a necessity at this point with how nice it is and it makes JavaScript sane. Uh, I just feel like those technologies that you listed are just really solid technologies that are being adopted by large corporations and have big support behind them.
0: It's interesting. Your stance seems very practical, which I I definitely don't think is a bad thing. Um, And as I've gotten a bit older, I've started to take a more practical approach as well. I used to like really dig into a bunch of um, I don't want to say esoteric technologies because that really downplays the people and that use them and the communities built around them. Yeah. But ones that like there just isn't a huge job market for Mm -hmm. like closure F F F sharp is a good example. Elm stuff like that. I still feel like there's a a reason to learn them. Um, Like I I have, I, I probably wouldn't write the same quality of code on any language that I write now, if I didn't dig into closure, like I I learned so much from it.
1: Absolutely. I think you get a lot of really great ideas from other technologies and things that may not be quite as practical as the things that we talked about a minute ago, but it's not something that you're likely going to use for at like a Facebook or maybe, you know, maybe they have a team or something that does it, but more than likely they're going to be doing something more mainstream, but the values that you get from those languages, because they are so unique, you know, you use word esoteric, but I I just some, it's just very like unique the way that they, the way that the language works versus another language. And it forces your brain to think a little differently. Um, and maybe even bring some of those patterns over that make a little bit more sense for certain applications.
0: Yeah, I agree with that entirely. So you mentioned, you taught yourself web development, You, you taught yourself, javascript uh react any any of those things so that was self-directed learning is that correct yeah definitely what's your secret to learning on your own how do you how do you find success there
1: um so by self-directed you just mean that i would not have taken a course or would have taken a course
0: uh i i suppose you could have taken a course but um i guess to me self self self-directed is uh the opposite of me being like, "Hey Shane, I need you to learn React. Here, uh, here's like, here's how you're gonna learn it." I like you, you, you took this upon yourself and and chose your own path to learn it. I see. Yeah, yeah. I, I the the beginning of it was just love, honestly. Like
1: I, when I started, I started the first day I learned to code. The first day I wanted to code when I was in like when I was like nine to thirteen. I don't even remember what year, how old I was, but I was told that being a developer, being a software developer would make you no money. Can you believe that? <laughs> I cannot. That blows <laughs> my mind. I was told it was going to make me no money. And then I was told that I needed to learn Visual Basic. So I was my Visual Basic for Dummies book was purchased for me. And needless to say, at 9 to 13 years old, however old I was,
0: I hated it. <laughs> Truth be told, I don't know if you can make money in Visual Basic these days. So maybe that's where they were coming from. <laughs> it could be, and that might
1: have been what they were thinking, is that this is what I think programming is, so this isn't gonna make any money. But regardless, I just wrote it off at that point. I wrote it off for 10 years. And when I was not even 10 years, I guess it would have been more like eight, but I when I turned 18, I was gonna be a neurosurgeon or a neuroscientist or some doctor of some kind. I'm not really sure what I was gonna do. But I was not going to be a developer and during my second semester of my senior year of high school I decided that I needed to make some more money to pay for a college that I wanted to go to that had a medical program that I wanted to be at and I needed to make some money prior because I didn't have enough scholarships to pay for it and he was either make money before and pay for it or make money during school and that did not sound very fun to me so my strategy was, let's go look at the Android App Store since it's new. And when I went to look at the Android App Store, I looked at the paid app section, and it was a mess if you were on the Android App Store at the early days. It, there was just absolute garbage of apps. And one of the top apps, it was like number three, was called Roll a Joint. And the, the app it was 2 dollars and it had over a million downloads And I was sitting there looking at that. And all you did in this app was grind up some weed and roll it into a joint and smoke it virtually, I guess. And I was looking at that and I'm thinking, that person made $3 million by making this app. Surely I can make something that's going to make some money. So I went to school and talked to my friends about it. And funny enough, they told me that I couldn't do it. I don't even know where this came from. It was like so left field. It made me so mad that somebody, my friend, was going to tell me that I couldn't do it, that I was going to go home and do it. And so I went home and I looked up how to to build an Android app and learned after like 30 minutes that it was written in Java. You know, it took me that long to even figure out what language it was. And then downloaded Eclipse and got to it. And, you know, months later, I finally got my first app out. But what's funny is through this whole time, I was still going to be a doctor and it was only like... a month before I went to college, I like already had my admissions, everything. I dropped it and decided I'm going to be a developer the rest of my life because of how much I loved it. I worked like every waking second of my day trying to learn, and that was how much I loved the how to code. I mean,
0: I just couldn't get enough. One thing you said that really stuck out to me there was how you had a friend tell you that you couldn't do it. It just goes to show you that public perception, especially from like a non-developer point of view, is very, very much, like, the stuff is impossible. It's so yeah. hard to do. Like, there are massive companies that build little tiny apps like like that. Yeah. But that's really not the case. Uh, like you said, you were able to, like, kind of get in there and, and get started on Android all on your own uh, with, you know, a blog post or a tutorial and... and um, it was actually YouTube videos. Oh, okay. Awesome. I spent
1: six months watching YouTube videos of stuff I had no idea what the guy was doing, and he was super annoying to me, too and uh it was the only thing i had like i knew nothing there was no other resource really at the time besides just grind like we didn't have code academy we didn't have freeCodeCamp.org.
0: you know yeah it was all so new back then that yeah. um everyone was focused on building like really gimmicky things instead of like teaching people how to yeah. how to code or build stuff yeah so you said YouTube videos. Do you still use YouTube today or have, do you use other... Like, I guess what type of media do you use when you, you learn new things?
1: Um, I think YouTube's really good for certain people. For me, it's a little slow because I like to... I've gotten pretty good at skimming stuff. What I mean by that is I've gotten pretty good at figuring out what I need to look at and what I don't need to look at. And I think a video is hard for me to index. Like I can't go and find that point in that video that I need without watching the entire video. And so nowadays I'd say that I don't use YouTube that much. I use YouTube for things that may be unrelated to code, but if it's anything related to code, at this point in my career, I just go straight to the docs. Um, Typically I prefer reading source code, not like source code, source code, but like reading simply what an app! What, what parameters it takes. You know, I've got a pretty good intuition. It took a while to build that intuition. Like um, speaking of this intuition, actually, we were talking about these gaps of people that think that it's like a whole impossible world on the other side. But it's funny because anybody that's crossed that gap knows that it's not the case and that it's actually opposite, that everything is easily learnable once you learn some paradigms, some basic paradigms. And those paradigms being conditional statements like if statements and while loops and functions and just basic stuff that's in every programming language and every web app, you know, stuff like that. Once you learn it, it's really easy to do cross transition, but the gap to get there is just so insanely hard that everybody thinks, not even saying, I would say insanely hard, it just takes a lot of time, uh, that everybody thinks that it's impossible on the other side
0: yeah it's really similar to learning another language, uh, yeah. like a spoken language or written language once like you we learned English because we naturally had to to survive. but like if you try to learn Spanish, it's really hard yeah but once you get Spanish down, if you pick up French, I'm not going to say it's not going to be really hard, but it'll be a lot easier than Spanish was because you'll have a lot of those things that you've you've broken down like uh, anatomically, like conjugating verbs mm-hmm. um, and and that stuff will just click a lot quicker. We just do that naturally in English. But uh, I think it's the same with programming. It's very hard to find languages that don't share like a concept of arrays or lists or integers and functions, stuff like that.
1: Absolutely. I think that you just learn what parts are important and what parts are the extra niceties that may be a nice little thing to have in this language, but probably not going to be used very often.
0: So one thing I don't particularly care for is a lot of Go libraries, um, instead of writing like documentation or, uh, sorry, like out of code documentation or tutorials, uh, we'll just point you to the Go doc. And I I love that Go generates documentation for you for packages. Just the way it does it's really fantastic. But I feel like it's really hard to parse some of that stuff for valid examples. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like, if you run into that, where would you turn? Like, would you look for blog posts or uh, back to YouTube?
1: No, I. I it, it would be searches on the internet. I I spend a ton of time on Google. It's actually it's astronomical how much time I spend on Google. I spend uh, on the actual page of Google, I, uh, Google.com. I spend like a couple hours a day, um, and that's based on like uh, what are those time tracking apps? I can't remember the one that I use but the one that just sits in the background and keeps track of what websites you're on. And I'll have, you know, so many tabs open that the only thing that you see on the tab is the X mark to close it. So that's like, you know, 50 or so tabs at least. And the reason why is because I'm sitting there and making a search. So say I have an error. First thing I do, I copy and paste the message into Google with a, with an extension like Ruby or react or a reference to what I'm doing contextually. Typically, Something will come up like Stack Overflow, and maybe somebody at the top will have a, a, a question that's similar, but not quite the same, or exactly the right question. If it's exactly the right question, it's easy. You go in there, you read it, You there may be a link to go read something more, and then you've got your answer. If it's similar question, then you are looking for parallels in your problem to their problem only to get new ideas to try. That's really what I try to do. What it essentially looks like, if I can't go to the docs like in Go in the Go Docs, which you're talking about, I feel like Go is a very seasoned developer type environment. Like the people that made Go intended Go to be used by corporations like Google, where people are have some some code experience under their belt. And then I mean, that's what the infrastructure is created for. And that may be why Go Docs are like the way they are, and that's a side effect. But if it, if it wasn't there and I'm completely new learning Go then I would definitely look at Stack Overflow. That's going to be something. There are random blogs, you know, like medium posts, a lot of medium posts that randomly come up with people giving like, how you do this and go. Um, And banging your head against it. Honestly, there really isn't a lot to some problems or learning in a lot of cases. Like I can tell you that I've spent a couple hours before looking for some problem, searching the internet for some problem, one singular problem pulling your hair out for that problem. At the end of the problem, you realize that it was like a semicolon in an odd spot that was creating an odd syntax situation that was giving you an error message that wasn't quite relevant. And so you were being thrown off the sniff to sniff out what the problem was. And, and sometimes that's the only way to go about it. Sometimes the only way you can can make something work is by simply getting as close to that problem as you can without making the problem happen and then making the problem happen so that you know what the problem is, and then di- di- figuring out from there how to fix it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I've been in that scenario so many times where I'm I just not, it- it's not obvious. And one of the things I do in that scenario is I'll just start commenting out code until it works. Um, and then whenever it works, it's, it's kind of like, uh, like, like searching an array of code for the broken piece. Like now that I know what works, I can invert that and say, okay, this is the block that doesn't work. Now let's go in and uncomment some of that. And if that still doesn't work, then okay, maybe the whole thing's broken, or maybe it's just in that little piece and seeing where to go from there. Exactly. Can definitely open
1: up so many opportunities for new ideas on what to do. When I see a problem, first thing that pops in my head, I have like two or three ideas of what the problem could be. Maybe I'll go search the internet. Maybe I'll try a few of those ideas. As soon as all those ideas are exhausted and you have no more ideas, the only thing you're left to do is delete some lines that you previously didn't have or did have and run it again. You know, go back to the last time you do know it was working. If you know it was working there, add one line. Is it working now? Then it was that line. So now you know that that's the problem and now you can keep, you know, slowly working through it just like what you were talking about.
0: Yeah, good debugging is something that uh, I, I never went through a code bootcamp, but I know in college they don't teach you, or at least they didn't teach me uh good debugging practices.
1: Yeah. It's definitely underrated skill in my opinion, but it's probably 80%
0: of what we do. Yeah, and it, it translates between languages like with ease. There's very little yeah. you have to do to like convert debugging C to debugging JavaScript, for example. Definitely. It it comes down to problem solving really. Agreed. Yeah. Um have you used any learning systems like uh Udemy before? Or Udacity or any of any of those, uh, I have, or I guess just, just Teachable, like anyone's Teachable site or anything. I ran, I built a Teachable site that was Spark School. Um, I've
1: used Teachable. The I've used um, Udemy for machine learning course. Um, and I know some people that used it to learn like Rails right at the beginning. You know, I personally haven't taken very many of those courses online. It goes back to that whole thing of me being my self-paced learner and knowing what i need to learn right now and having to look for it in a whole course i i really think that my learning style makes it so that i i have something that i want to do that's my end goal and it, i won't stop until it happens and it, it's not like i have to work as hard as possible it just means that i can't stop because persistence is more important than the effort that i'm putting out in a given minute because i could i could i could work five hours tonight on one problem that's going to work that's really hard, but my brain might not be 100%. Or I could work one hour on it, get it all in my brain, go to sleep, and wake up the next morning and fix it in 30 minutes. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I definitely do. And uh, one of the things I really liked about Clojure, for example, was I felt like when I was problem-solving in Clojure, I would spend 30 minutes staring at the code and then, like, one minute writing two lines of code, Uh, which sounds super unproductive, but, like... (laughs) uh it's it's solving very big problems and that's just a merit to the language uh and and how it it works as a whole that's cool i haven't done much with closure i need to try it out it's a fun little language for sure it's if i have to write anything on the jvm well kotlin's a thing now and kotlin's fairly nice but if it was before kotlin i would default to closure the jvm what a just tried and true uh
1: piece of technology i mean that's one that you can that's practical Honestly, I don't know how long. I feel like the JVM, you know, it's due for a replacement. But that thing, it's it's so solid. So many languages built on top of it. So much uh, running on it. I. It's just a really solid platform.
0: For any of our listeners that are unaware, the JVM is the Java Virtual Machine. It runs um, a a fair amount of languages at this point by converting them down to JVM bytecode and allows you to write code that runs anywhere. Yep. Um, I would also agree with what you said about it being tried and true, but also ready for a replacement. Uh I think that time is coming pretty quickly. If you notice, uh, Scala and Kotlin are really good examples. Uh, They're languages that were built for the JVM, but now have very um, supported native targets as well. So you can just circumvent the JVM. What kind of Uh, native
1: targets are they going for?
0: uh, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I'd have to look into that. Yeah, but I know that both Kotlin native and Scala native are very big. Okay. Uh, Closure can uh, write out to Closure script, uh, or sorry, to JavaScript called Closure Script and slightly modified. We use that at at Yelp. Really?
1: Yeah, we were uh, one of the only one of the head contributors worked there.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, I think we're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a moment, and we will talk about. Uh, Some of the learning frameworks or guidelines that you follow, what to do when you get stuck, and how to ask for help. Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around through the break. Shane and I just finished talking about his success in self-directed learning and and the media that he uses while learning these things. So we're going to jump straight into uh, some more questions about how he learns. So I was curious, Shane, do you follow any learning frameworks or guidelines? Learning frameworks
1: or guidelines? I think the answer to this is yes to some, some how, you know, but I don't remember what they would be. You know, I, I feel like I have been on Hacker News enough and probably read a few articles about learning. I read books about habits. I read books about you know, the way the brain works. I read books about um, just how, like, memory palaces, you know, things where you can remember more things, how to remember things. And there are things I just kind of take for granted at this point. Um, but I guess, actually, one thing that I do think about uh, fairly frequently is how I am remembering something. So I'll, I noticed that a lot of people remember things by remembering the thing. Like if you're in math class and you're remembering something about a mathematical formula, a lot of people choose to write the formula down, stare at it, and memorize it like it's, you know, night and day. But the truth is that the formula is, uh, not always going to be in that form. It's, is likely to be derived into other forms and likely the other formulas you're remembering are also derived from some root formula. So in reality you need like a handful of things to remember to derive the rest of it. So really when I try to learn something I'm looking for that that first principle. I'm looking for that thing that I can learn to remember only that thing such that when I need to recall The other parts, the pieces that are derived, I just sit there and derive it in like, you know, 30 seconds or whatever it takes to uh, reason about whatever the situation is. And boom, I got it. But all I had to remember was one thing.
0: Yeah, that's a really good approach. I do something similar, I guess, where I try to break everything down into small, like composable chunks of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And then whenever I see a problem, I try to break that down as well and say, okay, what chunks do I already know how to solve and solve those? So it basically reduces like uh, like problems or not necessarily problems, but like things to learn into the smallest possible piece. So you're not like stepping on your toes.
1: I, I think that's another really good one, too, is the divide and conquer strategy where taking a large, complex problem. Oh, man, that's actually so good. You're bringing back so many ideas now. So back in the day, I remember there would be situations where I would think of an app or a whole feature. And I would sit here and think, oh, there's so many ways to do it. So many ways to do this. So many ways to do that. And there are, there are a thousand million ways to do it, whatever. Um, and what I, what happen is you get overwhelmed. You know, you can't remember it all. You can't remember what you were going to do. Maybe you wrote a plan. Maybe that plan doesn't work anymore. Maybe you don't even know what the scenario is going to look like in 30 days, whenever you've written a couple thousand lines of code. But what I found to be extremely useful was thinking about things like a black box. And what I mean by that is whenever you're the de- de- whenever you're refining your problems, like you said, into smaller pieces, dividing them into smaller pieces, it's the absolute smallest piece that you can work on. If you can somehow manage to make that or think about it at least in a black box type scenario where no matter what the input is and the output is, it doesn't really matter what happened in the middle. That's the black box part of it. It just matters that the input is happening and the output's happening correct. So when I'm thinking about like one particular piece of a problem, like writing a function to do a specific thing, I'm trying to think of that function like a black box in such a way where anytime I need to reference that function, I never need to think about the contents of that function. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it really does. And if you mean function in the, in the literal programming sense, it, that way, and just like in general scope of problems too. Yeah, functions are—they're uh, not supposed to have side effects. They are supposed to be very black boxy. So that's a really good analogy. It's probably
1: where it came from. First class or first uh, first uh, what is it called? First class functions.
0: Uh, yeah, that would be a term for it. So. You're learning something new and it just doesn't click. I assume that happens every now and then. Uh, I know it does for me all the time. So how do you ask for help when you reach that point? What does that look like? I would say things don't click a lot, you know, like I don't get
1: them on the first try all the time or approaching something completely new. It feels like you don't know anything about it, but you're just piecing together copy and pasted stuff you found on the Internet to get it to work right now. And then you're gonna figure out you know like the inner details of it whenever you start really putting everything together i feel like that if i run into a uh, some problem that i feel like i'm completely stuck on there's two plans of action for me take a break is the first obvious one i feel like separation from your work um is so so important And that's something that I would say I learned from writing more than anything is that you need some sort of separation from the time that you wrote your draft to the time that you edit it to be able to actually have like a fresh perspective on the situation. And then I'd say that the second solution to problems that I just don't know the answer to is back to the like banging your head against the wall, debugging and splitting it up into really small pieces just to get it done, you know? Uh, I If you're talking about coding stuff these days, I feel like that most things are not... I don't feel like anything ever gets stuck because my opinion on it is that it's a function of time until I understand it, so there's no way I can get stuck. You know what I mean?
0: What about in, like in an example where you don't have enough time to figure it out on your own. Um I don't
1: know I've I'm a freelance so I have quite a bit of time nowadays. I'd say my shiny object syndrome kicks in before that happens. You know, like if I'm getting super discouraged by something that I either just can't do, I think time away is still so important. Like for instance, <laughs> There are all kinds of stuff like books. I read a lot of books and about a lot of stuff. And every time I read a book, I can read the same book over and over. I've done it. I've read like how to win friends and influence people over five times at least. And I'm quite a few more than that, I'm pretty sure. But every time I read it, read it, it's a different point in my life. And every time I read it, I get something different out of it because I've had separation from it. I've learned other stuff. So let's say you're stuck on something. Something just doesn't make any sense. To me the best thing to do would be go to work on something different and then come back to it in a month, in a week, in a day, however long you have to just kind of let your subconscious work on it, actually. Like, for instance, here's here's an example. I spent six months watching YouTube videos. You would have, like, in that six months, you could have asked me anything about coding, and I would not have been able to answer a single question. I was just simply writing what the guy was telling me to write and it barely made sense and it was only like variables were hard to understand and like what types were he says we're in Java and so it was just like things that I'd never thought about. And one day I literally woke up and I was like I think I understand functions now and it was that, it was literally that. and then that day on it was a black box like oh this is exactly like you take you know some parameters and it returns a value. every single one of these do this boom.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So it sounds like you uh, probably retain your learnings better if you solve them yourself and like conquer them on your own.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember the emotions that I have with the thing that I'm doing more than I remember what I was doing.
0: Interesting. Okay, I I think that's very opposite for me, or maybe not opposite, but very different for me. I like to uh, talk about things with people. So I will ask a bunch of questions about the stuff I'm learning. And they, they might sound like loaded questions because it might sound like I know the answer. And in, in which case, like hearing someone who does know the answer say yes or someone who uh, doesn't know the answer say, well, that makes sense to me is really helpful. Um, but other times I'll just have questions that I have no clue. Like I was doing some uh, GraphQL stuff with that uh, Go API that I was talking about uh-huh. and I was using a, a library for the GraphQL layer. And I just could not figure out how to do what I wanted it to do. And I kept poking around at it and poking around at it. And it's it's a side project for me, so I don't have a ton of time to allocate to it. So I finally found a similar issue on GitHub um, and said, I've tried everything that you guys have suggested. Uh, I can't seem to get this to work. Here's what I'm trying to do. Um, and some random person from GitHub commented on it and was like, hey, here's what I recommend you try instead. Do this, this, this. Like. And it really helped because it made me realize that instead of me just like throwing more spaghetti at the wall um, and seeing what sticks i I realized that I was looking at the problem the wrong way i see yeah
1: yeah i I think there is value in in hearing other people's opinion. I actually think that it's really from explaining yourself um I think that it you know rubber ducky debugging I'm sure.
0: Of course, I have uh, a rubber ducky on my desk and one uh, not too far from my office as well.
1: That's hilarious. I just use my dog. I just talk to him, you know. He's got pretty good advice.
0: My dog Luna likes to bark back whenever I talk to her, so it's a little (laughs) distracting.
1: That's hilarious. Um, But yeah, rubber ducky debugging is a perfect example of how this whole uh, uh, concept works, uh, how simple it is to just talk about it. It's almost like your brain doesn't, figure out or it's too lazy to figure out the details until you have to process it in speech to get it out to actually refine the details and i feel like that's really how rubber ducky debugging works and i think that's so valuable whenever you're talking to people you've mentioned talking to people and i would say that where talking to people really brings a lot of value is what you're talking about with thinking about the problems differently like perspectives you know if If I talk to you about something, the way you remember it, the way you interpret it, the way you describe it may even add a sort of sideways perspective to the way I think about it, the way I describe it to improve my understanding of what that actually is.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, I totally agree with that. I'm in a really weird spot as well uh, on a different vein where like I'm fortunate enough to be able to mentor uh, a couple engineers, software engineers uh-huh. and they come to me with questions every now and then, which is great. I love that. Yeah. But I'm trying to figure out um, how to not just feed them the answer. Yeah. But to give them an answer that makes them like think, but doesn't sound condescending. Does, yeah. does that make sense? Yeah. It's so hard. Cool. Okay. I'm glad I'm not the only one <laughs> that feels that way.
1: Uh, if you give them the answer, this is management stuff too. Like uh just in general management is the same way. If you give them the answer, if you tell them micromanage, if you tell them what to do, they don't learn. They will never do it that way ever again. If you don't tell them what to do and you instead are able to uh let them figure it out but be a guide. That's the hard part. And I really am not good at this and I really have a hard time even comprehending how to Go about uh, forming those questions or forming those statements. That I don't need to say, but it's absolutely way more important. You're you're really not giving them anything if you tell them the answer, but if you give them a way to find the answer, or I don't know. I guess that's it. Give them a way to find the answer. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I think actually, I I might have just asked you a question indirectly, and you answered it um, fairly directly, which was really cool. But I, I think maybe. Talking to them and just explaining like it's uh I'm not gonna give you an answer. Yeah. So if you ask a yes or no question, um, unless like production is broken or like you like, you know, someone's life is on the line. Right. Uh like the question you should be asking is like, how do I uh figure this out or why does this work this way? Not so much of like, well, what do I type here? Or like what what should I use instead? Right. So what's the problem that you were asked recently? Maybe we can like talk through because I kinda want to now uh yeah sure um so a really good example uh for anyone who doesn't know i do typescript stuff quite a lot uh so we had a question about um interfaces in typescript uh and what was really interesting is the developer that i I was talking to um has no real experience with type languages uh so uh they built really like um like One really off interfaces? yeah really one-off interfaces <laughs> um and and what what really got interesting was like we had uh we're working on a project together and they had some data coming back from uh an api um and that api uh gave way more data than they needed for their react component mm-hmm. so we were talking about um like how your React component's props interface should only be the props that it needs. It doesn't need like a full object if it only uses two keys from it. Okay. Um. And I I felt pretty confident explaining that, and then right. I made the connection that maybe they don't know what an interface is because they have never used a type language. Right. And then then I got stuck, and I was like, how do I, uh, how do I teach this? Like, how do I explain this in a way where like. Uh, I can talk about, I guess, in a way like a computer science topic, um, without sounding condescending or like uh, out of place. I see. Yeah,
1: I think interfaces—the real usefulness of interfaces—really doesn't click until you see it from either a different perspective or work at like a major company. I remember back in the day, I used to not think there was a big difference between interface and class, especially when I was working in Java. I mean, I I knew there was a difference. I didn't know what the difference was and I didn't know what they were used for, but when I started, but one thing that really solidified my understanding of interfaces was using Golang and their duck typing because duck typing for anybody that doesn't know is if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then it must be a duck. And what that means is it simply is if a ob- if an object or a class matches the attributes and the functions that are defined in an interface, then there's no reason why that class shouldn't be considered one of that interface. So you can simply cast it to that interface without having to declare it ever. It's called implicit typing. Is that right?
0: Yeah. And going, I think they refer to it as implicit interfaces or Implicit implicit interface implementation or something.
1: And that was really interesting to me because it really helped me understand that, Oh, interfaces are kind of like a contract that says, this is what you should expect coming through. But it can be implemented any number of ways.
0: Yeah, I agree with that as well. and And what's really interesting about interfaces is it basically says, like you can give me whatever you want, but these are the things I care about. So these right. are the things that like if you change this stuff, you might break our agreement. so
1: this so the person you were talking to, so they did you talk to them about interfaces?
0: I did, yeah, a little bit, um, and tried to explain it, and it seemed like he he grasped it pretty quickly, but it just felt like a weird conversation to have instead of just uh, being like, well, here's what you do, Uh Um, and actually having to dig in and be like, well, here's why uh, that works. Right, I see. What wonder
1: what a question like, how would you use this if you were to use this component elsewhere in your project? Would work because I feel like if you're talking about props and making it restricted to only the props it absolutely needs, and really thinking about it in a in a black box component type mindset, that portability defines how you structure its inputs.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, one of the things that not just the person that I, I mentioned, but uh, myself and even a lot of other developers kind of struggle with is, is figuring out like I could just pass it this entire object and you know it'll work fine and it's it's great because it's nice and easy. But if I want to reuse that in other parts of my code, now do I have to like make that object before using that component again to pass it into it? Right, and that gets that gets really weird. So like a really good example is maybe you just need the ID of something, but you take in like I'm working on a, a an app that works around books. Okay. Um, so maybe I just need the book ID, but if I tell you I need an entire book object and you want to reuse that component, yeah, two things will happen. You'll either give me an entire book object that you'll have to make right before you pass it into my component, or you'll give me an empty book object with an ID because you will have looked at my component and said, oh, they just use the ID, which like, yeah. maybe that's fine. But yeah. if I'm using your using the book, maybe I also want the title and it's just not there yet. Or maybe I I don't really want that. So like, um, I guess just being more more specific with the props is is really important.
1: Yeah, it, it's hard. That's a you t- you mentioned struggling with it today. I, I don't think that problem ever stops. Like, I think the hardest problem that a developer faces is simply naming variables. <laughs> like it, it's called call me crazy, but naming variables is honestly one of the most important parts of development in my opinion, and one of the hardest. What do you think about that?
0: Oh, I, I totally agree. Um, as I've gotten older, uh, and this is actually part of the reason why I don't really write much closure or F-sharp anymore. I'm sure if anyone listening to this writes those languages, please call me out on it because I'm sure that's not the case. But it, it feels this way for me. Um, I focus more on optimizing for readability than I do for writability. And one thing I liked about Clojure was I felt like I could knock out huge features in like four or five lines of code. Um, eh, Maybe a little more. But when I came back to that code, even me being the person that wrote it, like weeks later, I'd be like, I have no idea what's going on here. So then I'd like, I'd debug and refactor my own code. And if you ever find yourself debugging code that's not broken, like (laughs) just, just to add a new feature, that is not a good sign.
1: That's a good rule of thumb, right there. Somebody should write that down.
0: Yeah, uh, that should be preserved. But, <laughs> yeah. but that, that's exactly what I ran into, and I, I was like, man, so this is this is bad. Like, I'm in a situation where I was building an API uh, a, for podcasts, actually, um, and I had a, a friend doing the front end for that, uh, and it was written in Angular, and he he just didn't know Closure. I don't think he had any desire to learn Closure. So we were trying to figure out the best way for him to be able to figure out what the endpoints uh, expect and what they return without like uh, me just literally writing all of them down. So we tried Swagger for a little bit and we tried a couple other things and we actually switched to Scala um, because he had some Java experience and I, I really did not want to write Java. Uh, so we switched to Scala and he's like, I can read this stuff. This is pretty, this is pretty readable. And I I, ever since then, that moment has been like, very motivational to focus on readability especially uh-huh. on anything that's not a personal project or anything that could ever grow beyond a personal project
1: absolutely i i think that that's absolutely on point uh it takes a long time to learn too because we all love clever stuff you know like the ter- nested ternary operators you know you've done there, i've done it everyone's done it and And, and just random stuff that is super hard. And I'm sure closure, I've never worked with something that's so clever, you know, such a clever language. And, um, but there was something that Yelp that they told us and we were interns. So it was perfect advice for all of us. And they told us that you're working on a team. The person next to you has to be able to read it, just like you're saying, and you're building a web app. It's not like you're going to loop over a million records. You don't need to be super uh, concise and efficient for the sake of efficiency, you know, because these are people that could definitely write some very efficient code. But if you're going to loop over 100 records and you need to make two for loops, then do it, you know? It's like if you're sacrificing readability, especially with working with other people, but even working yourself, in my opinion, um, because here's the truth. You're going to be maintaining any app you build that's in production for the rest of your life until someone else does. That's the truth. And I don't think anybody really realizes that, but that's the life of developer. And that really stuck with me was because a, a company that, you know, was hiring 300 or so engineers or that had it 300 engineers on staff that they cared more about the practicality. And that's really, I think where my practical mindset comes from is working in a company and. Carfax is a great example of this too. You know, it's just like I was at Carfax and we were both at Carfax and we may or may not have liked some things about the way that things were done, but something that was repeated a lot was this is the Carfax way. And being young myself, I didn't really understand exactly what that meant, but having more experience now, I really do get how you're you need to think about the things that you're doing with the context that you're given, not the ideal case scenario that you wish you had.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, That's something that it's like, uh, especially when I was younger and I'm probably still guilty of this today is um, like instead of focusing on the context being like, well, that's not the way it should be. This is the way it should be. Yeah. Uh, But not everything is like roses and daisies. It would be nice, but we're back to the moving too fast. I mean,
1: I I built an app right at the beginning of my development career, and I'm still maintaining it today, and it's a freaking nightmare. I'm being kicked off Heroku right now, so I have to move it over to EC2, so I'm Dockerizing it and all this stuff. But that just goes to show how fast it becomes relevant and even unsupported by hosting companies. So it's, it's coming back to it. It's just it changes too fast. Like, there's just no way to keep up with it.
0: Yeah, so I want to circle back a little bit to what you're talking about with Yelp. Um, so two things that I, I feel are important to share um, are two ideas that I have recently tried to embrace as a developer. So the first one is, um, every time you try to optimize code, you should consider if it's worth it. If you're working on software that runs pacemakers, it probably is. Yeah. Otherwise. Consider it and say, is this going to make things easier to maintain going forward or harder to maintain? And then what's the cost? Assuming, and this is a very outlandish assumption, assuming that a developer is paid $10 an hour to write code and considering the cost of upgrading a server slightly for an extra performance hit, it is way cheaper to write slightly less performant code that is more readable Hmm. than uh, more more performant code that is less readable. Just because the amount of time they will spend trying to wrap their head around what's going on, even yeah. at $10 an hour, will quickly outnumber the cost of the extra uh, server capacity.
1: Absolutely. People are getting more expensive every day. Servers are getting cheaper every day. I think that's only going to get more apparent.
0: Agreed. And, and the second thing that I feel like sharing um, is we've started, uh, I always try to mention this in code reviews, Like when when your code is on um, your machine, you're accountable for it. Mm -hmm. When it gets merged into master, the team is accountable for it. So at that point, you have a code review where people on your team say, yes, I understand this. I'm okay with this being merged into master. That's the point. It's not to nitpick. It's not to like try to point out micro optimizations or assert like developer dominance. Yeah, it's saying I see what you've written. I accept that any of us might have to maintain this. I approve and then when that goes to production, it's no longer the team that's accountable; it's the entire company.
1: Yeah, and that's it. Varies a little bit, you know. Definitely, entire companies are like the the it, like uh, wanting the site up and making sure that it works, and everybody's going to pitch in to make that sure that happens. But there's always like the people that originally wrote it probably still maintaining a large portion of it. But you're absolutely right. I mean, the you're going to run into that kind of thing
0: all the time. Cool. Um, I definitely agree with that, but I do want to give us another time to take a quick break, um, and then we'll come back and wrap all of this up. Okay. Does that work for you? Yeah, sounds great. Awesome. We'll be right back. And we're back shane uh so we talked about asking for help and and uh what to do when you get stuck but i have an interesting scenario and i'm curious to hear your thought on it so a friend and i picked up a couple udemy courses the other day uh during their their big sale um and we are planning to go through them together okay uh so kind of we watch this like kind of like a book club we'll both watch certain episodes or segments and then um every thursday i go to a coffee shop and that friend usually shows up as well uh and we work on stuff but i think the plan is to just kind of talk about what we've seen and digest it together um the first one's go related and he's pretty new to go okay but the next one is flutter and we're both new to flutter what are your thoughts on that what's flutter uh flutter is uh a um oh lord uh it's a li- well it's not a language it's a toolkit for developing android and ios applications using the dart programming language Hmm. yeah it's uh i think it's a google project now that you mention it that's really
1: interesting i is angular made by google too that was just something i was thinking
0: about a minute ago uh it originally was made by google i think it still is under their umbrella although i know microsoft has really stepped up and embraced a lot of it too
1: interesting that's really interesting i've not heard of Flutter. i i've heard of dart i thought dart was sort of something that was being phased out but i didn't know i mean i don't know anything about it really i dart's a sort of replacement to javascript right
0: it's yeah that and so much more it's really really tricky so it compiles down to js yeah and for a while there was an experimental dart virtual machine that shipped with chrome that you could turn on yeah and you could run dart code instead of javascript code right so they they were very big about like ship your js code and your dart code and chrome will figure out which one it can run and run it for (laughs) you so you you could have like enhanced features in dart mode or, or stuff like that yeah um and then and then they were like, oh, yeah, by the way, you can write Dart on the server now, too. And it kind of runs more like Java and uh, than than JavaScript. Um, and it just it got really weird, really fast. And then it kind of disappeared. I actually wrote a, uh, a very um, not well received and very ill placed blog post a while back called Dart is dead or like the death of Dart. <laughs> um, so I was really shocked to Ooh. hear when when they announced Flutter and they're like, we're using Dart for this i 'm curious how long that'll last and I expect Kotlin might take over but we'll see
1: who was the who was giving you crap about your dart post uh is
0: I it? uh now I'm pretty sure someone posted it on hacker news a while back and it just I had think. really negative feedback but I mean hacker news is kind of a negative place so what what, yeah, what do you expect honestly,
1: it's it's the devil's advocate if I've ever
0: seen one have you heard of dev.to Mm-mm. uh so I've Really taking a liking to that community over Hacker News. It's kind of different. It's a little more tech focused, less startup yeah. focused, but um, really, really positive, great community.
1: I uh, I think that it's more dev focused to be an awesome environment. I I get not as much dev out of Hacker News anymore. I just kind of look at it for just generally um academia type stuff. Like uh, you know, they're always coming out with like the history of the lockpicks or something. Like you know, something something interesting that I want to read, rather than and keeping up on the random libraries that gets that get posted. But more often than not, I feel like these days it's a lot more of just general news and interesting topics than it is like back in the day when when I was first coming to hacker news. It was like every day it was a show hacker news post, and every day was a new blo- new library for JavaScript. Like it literally seemed like that, and every day you know just something more related to what you're talking about here like dev.to yeah
0: i definitely agree um we'll circle back to our question in just a second but i'll explain why i uh, kind of i don't want to say switched because i still go to hacker news every now and then just way less yeah um so i started doing uh, instead of new year's resolutions i do like a yearly theme and okay. this year's theme was positivity So, like, removing negativity and focusing on positivity. And and that was one of the biggest uh, negative sources that I had when I, like, wrote everything down and evaluated them. (laughs) Dude, Uh, same. I've cut Hacker
1: News out of my life so many times because of how negative they are.
0: Yeah, every now and then someone will post one of my blog posts on there and I'll see, like, a flood of traffic and get really excited. And then I'll, I'll go to Hacker News and, like, every now and then you'll find someone that, like, says something nice. But generally it's, like... Hmm. I don't know if I agree with this person because they share different values than me. So I'm going to objectively state how they're wrong. And right. like, even though it's not, but I'm it's really interesting. Like, oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: He's just reflecting, or she is just reflecting on the on the blog post. You know what I mean? Reflecting themselves.
0: Yeah, uh, it's anything it's really else. really interesting because occasionally, I'll, like less frequently, in fact, I'll have posts shared to you, like Reddit or a couple other things, and those are all generally like. I don't want to say positive, but they're very constructive. Mm-hmm. People are asking like very valid questions and they're not just complaining. Like Hacker News has become like the Facebook of, <laughs> of, of like tech news. It's kind of weird. Even so, I feel like
1: they, there's still so much value there. I, I, it's crazy because I can't think of another source of quote unquote news that I like better than Hacker News. Like, doesn't matter what Harvard Business Review, maybe. Um, that's it. Like, I honestly can't think of, in, and even they have some really clickbaity titles. But even Reddit, don't like Reddit that much. I feel like Reddit doesn't have a negative attitude, but they have a self-defeated attitude in a lot of cases.
0: That's fair. I can see that. I know. Uh, there was a tutorial a while back posted by someone. Um, and it was, uh, you you know how like making a hacker news clone has become the new like make a to do list for yeah. web development. Yeah. It was like an idea for a tutorial, make a hacker news clone where the people are nice.
1: <laughs> That's hilarious.
0: Um, so I do want to circle back. So uh, we were talking about the book club type study buddy session. I was curious okay. what your thoughts are on that.
1: I like the book club type study session. I think that, um, I, you know, I think everybody has a way they like to learn. Courses are not really my way. I like to learn, but for people that do like to learn from courses, that'd be the way. My way to learn is more from like reading books, especially if it's a topic unrelated to coding. But if it's related to coding, like I have three data science books sitting in front of me right now. Um, But I definitely think that there's so 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 much value in people. Like, if you're coding in, especially if you don't have much experience, if you're sitting in your room and only coding and not talking to anybody else that's either a peer knows less than you or knows a little bit more than you or knows way more than you. If you're not talking to somebody else, you're going to be learning substantially slower than going and just simply having chats with somebody once a week like you're talking about.
0: Yeah, I, that that's definitely the way I learn best. And I guess that brings up a really interesting point. Like if you are listening and you're new to development, And especially if you're in a big city, you should try to find a meetup. I guarantee there's a dev meetup where you can just kind of uh, at least try to soak up the culture and and the knowledge. And if you hate it, don't go back. You just you maybe lose a Thursday evening or something. Um, But I know when I lived in San Francisco, I loved going to meetups. And we have a couple where I'm at now um, around the Louisville, Kentucky area. And those are still great. Um, If you don't live in an area where there are meetups. Uh, consider hosting one Um, you don't have to be the most knowledgeable person on a topic to host and if you can't do that I highly recommend looking for an alternative like an online type uh, scenario where you can just uh, like a user group where you can just talk about the tech that you're using with other people
1: I agree I think that in person is great I think that you can just as much have something remote especially with day and how easy it is to communicate. Um, the way I actually learned interesting. We're talking about this. I was learning to code in my own, just like what I was describing in my basement. No one else to talk to. No one even know I programmed because I was embarrassed to tell anybody hilariously. And um, one day my dad tells me that I need to find a partner if I'm ever going to start a business. So, Uh, I end up thinking about the people that I knew from school, which I didn't know them. I just knew of them. And I knew that one person in one of my classes was learning how to code at the same time that I was writing papers about neuroscience and learning how to code in secrecy. And that person, I didn't know them at all. I never once talked to them, not even in that class, probably. And, uh, didn't know them at all in high school, and then as soon as I got out, uh, about six months or so later, I messaged them on Facebook Messenger, like, "Yo, I heard you were into coding because we were in the same class, and I, you know, saw saw you talking about it." And it turned out that he was like, you know, really active, really crushing it, really wanting to do a lot of things in his free time, and I was wanting to do the same. We both wanted to start startup, uh, you know, just ambitious. We're reading Hacker News every day. We're just getting hyped. And what we did was we started a chat on Hangouts, Google Hangouts, and we simply sent links to each other every day. Like it would be, we'd be sitting there on Hacker News, be like, yo, you check out this new library. Look at this book I just read, or what do you think of this piece of code? Or look at this funny picture, or Microsoft just, you know, just like anything that possibly could be shared. And I've not stopped doing that to this day. With that person, his name is Ryan, but uh, you probably hear him at some point on this show, actually. But uh hopefully, he got some good stuff to say. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, we'll see. I'm I'm looking for more guests, so if he's interested, I'd love to hear from him.
1: All right, I'll put a good word in. I think he'll be he'll be down. And uh, but yeah, I, I that was so important. And the and here's the interesting thing: Ryan and I have always been in the group since day one, but other people have come and gone, and they've come and gone to do different things so for instance there's a guy named drew that we that that was added to the group at some point and more or less by osmosis really got into the same vibe you know got into the same wavelength and he's seen a lot of success too and he's a very good dev now too and there was another person named um Man, I'm, I'm blanking, right off am top of my head. I, I feel so bad that I'm blanking, but Zoo—that was his name, DZU—and his name was Zoo, and he never really participated. But I could tell he randomly would come on and read. And now he's crushing it, uh, doing something awesome at Walmart. You know, it, even if you didn't participate in this group, but you were part of the group, the amount of information that was exchanged and just the pure like observation—it was like almost like leading by example, you know—and it really got people hooked. And I thought that was really interesting, and I and I've never really had a, another time where it's replicated something so efficiently. But that I think that honestly, that that chat might be the reason why I made it through it all.
0: Yeah, I having a support system is so important. Yeah, and we do that as well with some of my friends. We have a a Discord channel where we post. Um, it's called it's called One Up actually, and it's. Uh, a bunch of different stuff there's a programming topic there's a game design topic art studio um stocks all sorts of, of <laughs> silly stuff um but yeah we post stuff like that and uh we also have like uh there's a facebook group with most of my programmer developer software engineer friends um that sees a lot less traffic than it used to um but that was a thing for a while like you're definitely not the only one that uh, has done that. And we've seen a lot of success from it too. Definitely.
1: It's just so important to, to share ideas. It's like having 10 people learning at the same time has so many more feelers out for good ideas than one person that's just looking for one idea. You know what I mean?
0: Completely agree. It's the think tank idea yeah. or a concept.
1: Yeah. And it provides such a good network effect too, because here's the truth. The people that get hired at most companies are referrals. That's it. Like you can go through the system and you better be able to sell yourself or not, not like an overly way, you know, but just like be able to talk, to talk about things, reason through problems, like answer the team, uh, polit politics types problems. Well, like what do you do when the problem arises and stuff like that? And also show some coding skills. But I feel like that your best bet of getting a job anywhere is if somebody internally recommends you because you're going to instantly get an interview, no questions asked, and you're likely going to get some form of expedited process, uh, barring even big companies, but even big companies do it. And the truth is, is that they want to hire referrals because referrals are going to be the most tried and true candidates.
0: They're also generally a lot cheaper too, especially if the company pays like a a headhunter or or like a recruiting firm to staff them. Um, Absolutely, referrals are super cheap for them, even if they give you a referral bonus. So, like, it's really a win-win because ideally, you get to work with great people that you've worked with in the past, or you you know are are going to be good workers, and you get a little bit of money out of it. As
1: an interesting anecdote to this whole statement and how real it is, and how much it was obvious to me when I worked at Sumo, a startup here in Austin. I was the only inbound hire that they ever hired. I they had never hired anybody that wasn't either referral or Noah looking for them specifically and poaching them essentially, and I was employee number thirty or something.
0: Damn, that is. Uh... <laughs> they didn't
1: hire anybody else after either from through their channels. That was the only one. Crazy. I know, and that's how that's how much like especially at. Companies like small, you know, quote unquote, small businesses making millions of dollars a year, but quote unquote, small businesses, uh, people with 50 or less people, even Carfax. I mean, they they're going to do a lot of referrals, too.
0: Yeah, I was a referral at Carfax and uh, a referral for my current employer as well, Team Snap. Like, And that just worked out really well. Yeah,
1: it's so important. And all you have to do is make friends with the people that are also doing the same thing as you. So it's pretty easy. You know, and they go get jobs, you get jobs and you help them out. You share ideas like links and have good times and they help you out. You know, same thing happens.
0: Yeah, I will say that um, it's not it's not super easy Um, just just because like not only do you have to be a good person and make sure that they see that, but also like, you know, your stuff. A lot of times when you refer someone, they could be placed on the same team as you. Um, so if you're not really willing to work with that person, then maybe you maybe don't refer them.
1: Yeah, definitely not just refer whoever. Because a referral is definitely a, a statement of the person referring. Like It's it's not like you are giving them every possible person. It's like asking that person. It's kind of a, a statement of your reputation.
0: Yeah, it really is. And like, if I were to refer someone and they come in and, and bomb it, And I'm the whole time in the interview process. uh, Maybe the panel that is interviewing is like, I don't really know. I'm kind of on the fence. But Brad said he's a he's a real rock star or something. Um, And they come in and bomb it like, well, there goes my credibility. I'm not going to be able to get anyone else referred.
1: Right. Or if you are, it's going to be at least thought through again. You know, maybe they won't play too hard on you, but still, it's got to be something considered.
0: Um, so. Generally, when we try to wrap things up, I ask the question of what are you going to work on next or what's next for the project that we're talking about? Um, But we talked a lot about learning. So I'm curious, what are you planning on learning next?
1: Hmm. So I have like 10 books in front of me, so I'd probably be a good place to start. Let's see. Data science was one of them. And I started getting into it and I learned that 80% 80% of my time is going to be spent wrangling data into a usable format to and it's okay, but it's not really something that I enjoy that much. So I likely won't pursue that path for a job or like a skill that I'm going to do for a job. Um, but I do really enjoy the knowledge for building a business or seeing, you know, having that tool to use when I see a problem that needs that tool rather than trying to apply a hammer to everything. So there's that. Um, After I decided that I didn't really want to pursue that as a consultant or contractor, I'm going to instead go back to my bread and butter and do React. And there's not a ton of learning that has to be done because I did React for almost a year at Sumo. Um, So I have a lot of knowledge about how to do it, Um, and I, I led that project, so I very much understand it, but I don't remember it completely, so what I'm gonna end up doing is starting a project that needs, like it could be something simple, you know, like I don't know what the project's gonna be yet, but it could be you know, any number of things and just anything, and it's gonna simply use React, and I'm going to build the tools I'm going to set up an environment that I like. I'm going to use Docker. I'm going to use, I don't even know what I'm going to use for build tools. Can you believe that? I'm a, I know I'm going to use TypeScript because I know TypeScript is awesome, but I don't know if I can just, I, so my build is make file, Docker file, and that's all that I do. I don't do any of the other stuff, So, or I try not to. So if I can't build it with one line from the command line from TypeScript, I'm going to be vastly disappointed. Because I have to go back to the React app and work with the Create React app, which is a nightmare, in my opinion.
0: That's interesting. I know most people really love Create React app. um You know, if really? you
1: start the build tools, like what the f- what what are you supposed to do with the build tools I, when you export them? They're unusable.
0: You, you mean eject?
1: Eject, yeah. yeah. But like, uh, same
0: thing. yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was just making sure we were talking about the same thing. Yeah,
1: sorry, I didn't mean that sound snooty.
0: No, no worries. Um. I don't know. They're not that bad. I mean, it's Webpack, so it's it's kind of hard to read just in general. But
1: that, I guess that may be my problem is I'm just not super good at Webpack. I'm super super familiar. But my gosh, like, there another problem is they're trying to do so much modularization. Like, you need to compile only one tiny little piece of a React app. It's a React app. Until I have like a thousand components, I really don't need to care about breaking up my build.
0: Yeah, that's. Um... It's interesting that kind of circles all the way back to our like don't worry, don't optimize so much. Focus on readability, um, yeah. or like maintainability of the build pipeline. In this case, it's not it's not easy because it's uh, optimized for everyone, I guess. Yeah,
1: it's optimized to use at a a big company that needs a big system. Yeah, but it's not optimized to come in tweak for your purposes so that you can put a react app out in a weekend
0: um you know when you use create react app you can uh dash dash typescript and have typescript support okay
1: i'll look into that because i definitely uh so so does typescript have a one command that you can build everything with
0: uh yeah uh, so you have like a typescript config json um and then okay. tsc the typescript compiler will uh read your ts config um but yeah if you do create react app uh dash, dash typescript and then you eject like your you even if you don't eject um your npm like run start will uh start your app for you and with typescript compilation and everything like it's all wired up and then um npm run build i think will give you your prod build so no more webpack uh well <laughs> You still, you still will likely use Webpack. Create React App ships with Webpack, so even if you do the TypeScript one, you still will have Webpack, and I think it uses like awesome TypeScript loader under the hood.
1: What does Webpack bring to the table that is important in the situation?
0: Oh man, so that's a that's a whole other episode, but um, I'll talk lightly on it. So <laughs> the idea is uh, basically, it doesn't. It's one build system regardless of whatever front end thing you're doing. So whether you're writing TypeScript or JavaScript or HTML or CSS, uh, it all kind of bundles everything and treats it like one cohesive piece. So you can import um, CSS into your TypeScript, for example, or you can import an image into your uh, JavaScript. And Mm -hmm. that'll give you like the, it'll give you a hashed image ID in that case um, for each build. And then you can just reference that. And instead of having to worry about like, well, the path is actually public slash images slash my image dot png. You just import my image png in your code, and, and Webpack will take care of all of that for you. It's okay. it's really nice once you uh, understand what it does. But yeah, modifying it, man, can be a, a total pain, especially if you're new.
1: Yeah, I I I yeah I don't know. This it just goes back to the. The thing is, it seems to me like it's not for what I'm doing, you know?
0: Yeah, that's fair. And it it might not be, and it it definitely can feel that way. Oh,
1: Yeah, go ahead.
0: Oh, uh, I was just going to ask, as we kind of wrap things up, if people are interested in following you or your work, where can they they do that? Do you have a GitHub or a Twitter handle or personal website or anything? I I have
1: all of those. And... Uh, Shane Burkhart. I try to make my username just my name. And my Twitter handle is Shane underscore underscore Burkhart. And my GitHub is just Shane Burkhart camel cased. Pascal case, not camel cased. Not that it matters. And what was the last one? Oh, personal website. ShaneBurkhart.com.
0: Nice. You got the, the good TLD.
1: Yeah. There's only other one Shane Burkhart in the world that it ranks on my Google search, so... Got my work cut out.
0: Yeah, there are a couple of Brad Cyperts, but I'm doing pretty well, so I can't complain. Yeah. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this episode of the Design Doc podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Cypert. You can find me on Twitter at B-R-A-D-C-Y-P-E-R-T. Same with GitHub. And my personal website and mailing list, if you're interested, is bradcypert.com. You can find Design Doc anywhere podcasts can be heard. Thanks for tuning in.